Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guests, I first have to start by thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, and to continue to encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends, your family, with other people you know, and heck, you may as well share with people you don't know. So please rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, you may as well follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. You can also share us and like us, interact, because I'm always hanging around that page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely and definitely appreciated. Okay, we're going to get started with the show. And my guest today is Victor Minash. Now, before we get started, just a quick note is that my original interview with Victor, I had an ST, an SD card that glitched, so lost the front half of the interview. So this is actually a second interview to fill in the gap of what I lost. But the good news is that Victor shared even more of his experience and his lessons with real estate investing views with us. So having said all of that, let me open up with some background of Victor Minash. For the past 10 years of his professional life, Victor was and has focused on real estate investment. This started locally in Canada and quickly went into the U.S. markets as he saw the opportunities for great investments present themselves in a bigger, grander way to meet his vision. He spent the first 25 years of his career in the high-tech industry and had roles that included being the vice president of engineering at Waysat a developer of chips for wireless networks. And then he was also the chief technical officer at Applied Microcircuits Corporation, which was in the Silicon Valley. It was a public company that develops processors. He was the founder and chief operating officer at Somerset Technologies and also held several senior roles in marketing and engineer with Tundra Semiconductor. So Victor started his career at Bell Northern Research and Nortel, where he designed chips that were used to control the telephone network for approximately a decade. 54% of phone calls in North America were routed by a chip that he actually designed. So today he's not only an accomplished developer in the world of real estate and a real estate investor, but he's also the author of his book, Magnetic Capital, and he's the host of his podcast, the Real Estate Espresso. In that context, he calls it his short and daily shot of real estate 
insights, lessons, and inspiration. And without any further delay, let's chat with Victor. Victor Benash, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Good to have you on the show. Great to be here. Man, sometimes we have trouble connecting, and uh, it's taken a while back and forth, and this is actually a re-record. I'm going to shine a little bit of a light on that for the listeners. And uh, one of my SD cards glitched when uh, Victor and I did uh, this podcast in the past, so we're actually adding some of the podcast. So if it doesn't seem quite as seamless as uh, you'd expect, that's the reason why for that. But I know my editor, Jason, will get this handled really well. So Victor... Once again, thanks for uh, joining us on the show. And I want to just really get kick it off quickly and and get back to tell me about Victor. What's your kind of 60-second or 120-second elevator's pitch when somebody says, Victor, what do you do? Well, these days I'm known for working as a real estate developer, um, raised a lot of money uh, for both technology ventures and for real estate, and I've developed a reputation for that, written a book called Magnetic Capital on the topic. But if you really go back to the core, I'm not a real estate person. I'm really more of a business guy. You know, I got my start, my career as a microprocessor designer. It's not your typical career path into the world of real estate investing, far from it. And uh, so... You know, that's where I started. But along the way, developed some expertise in business development, developed some expertise in raising money, uh, did a bunch of mergers and acquisitions work. And around 2010, when I made the decision to transition into the world of real estate investing, discovered that there were a whole bunch of pretty portable skills that made a lot of sense. You know, it's very easy for me to transition uh, capital raising as as a skill set, project management as a skill set, business management, leadership, risk management, all of these things were very portable skills. And in particular, one that has really helped me a tremendous amount in the world of tech, you work in a lot of distributed teams. At one point, I had 13 different design centers reporting to me around the world. So I got really good at managing remotely. And in the world of real estate investing, we tend to think of it as hyper-local, which it is, but that also for many people translates into doing things that are within you know, a 15-minute drive of their home. Uh, virtually nothing that I do is within a 15-minute drive of my home. It's usually uh, several hours of flight away, and, and it's because I developed that skill to manage things remotely. So that's a little bit about me. That opens up a whole number of areas and directions we can go with this conversation, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. You know, Victor, there's, there's, you're a developer, and I know that a lot of the work you do is in the U.S., and I think you do some stuff in Canada. Yes. But give us a little bit of background on, uh, in terms of what you're doing as a developer. What is the model you're working on right now? What are you doing in the U.S.? What have you done in Canada? What's your background right now as a developer? So the path into development, that too, was not a perfectly straight line. You know, when I got into the marketplace, it was really one of the best times you could possibly hope for. Everything was on sale. And at that time, you could buy things far below construction costs. So it didn't make sense to develop. Where we started uh, on the development side was really in Philadelphia. Uh, the very first acquisition we made was of 15 properties in one day from an auction. And so we got thrown into the deep end. And these were all kinds of different properties. Uh, some were vacant lots, some were derelict structures. Generally speaking, when we redeveloped them, we demolished the inside, kept the exterior structure, and constructed a new building on the inside. So that was kind of the first step towards 
you know, new construction. From there, we started developing some of the vacant lots. From there, we started going to zoning approvals to try and get higher density. Then we started doing land assemblies. Uh, then, you know, every step of the way, we would add one more variable. Uh, then, you know, the step from there to greenfield development, where you're doing all of the entitlements, uh, getting all the services in place, that too was a small step. We weren't adding five or six variables at any given point in time. It was an incremental approach. And every single investment that we made was not based on the traditional real estate metrics. It wasn't based on, you know, looking at comp analysis or any of those types of things, valuable as they are. We really took more of a fundamental business approach and looked at the laws of supply and demand. Uh, in those situations where there was an excess of demand and a shortage of supply, uh, and we could see that situation persisting for a period of time, that's when we made the decision to pull the trigger and invest in a significant way. And, and that's been kind of the hallmark of everything we've done. We really always view everything through that lens of supply and demand. Now, where's your primary kind of locations? Because I know U.S., you've you've evolved to the U.S., are, and that's been kind of your big area. But specifically, where in the U.S. are you are you driving your projects? So today we're still actively developing in Philadelphia. We've scaled back a little bit there because it's been a lot of new construction. Uh, I think at the peak we owned about 85 properties, uh, you know, that we assembled together. We mostly were building small to medium-sized apartment buildings, you know, 9, 10, 12, 13 units, something like that. It's been kind of the typical size. And that's been largely governed by how much property we could assemble in a given site. And whatever density was permitted, that's what we built. Uh, if we could get a bigger parcel, we would build more. Uh, that, that was really the governing factor. For whatever reason, uh, in Philadelphia, you hear a lot of New York accents. Uh, you know, if you live in Manhattan and you've got a six-figure salary, you probably have a roommate because that's all you can afford. If you, uh, if you live in Philadelphia, you can often work for the same company. If you have to take a train into the city, the new high-speed rail, you're into Penn Station on 34th Street in an hour and 15 minutes. And you don't have to pay Manhattan rents, work for the same company, and you have a completely different quality of life by living in the Philly market. So there's a lot of growth. Uh, we pioneered a strategy that I call buy on the line, move the line. And uh, we don't see this so much in Canada, but every city in America has this situation. Even some cities in Canada have this too. And that line that we're talking about is that line between the hot, gentrified neighborhood, you know, where there's a coffee shop on every corner and there's a, an art gallery down the street. And you go two blocks too far and all of a sudden you're in the hood. Every city in America has that situation. And so if your listeners have spent time in the U.S., you can clearly visualize this. And the, the strategy is very simple. You buy just on the wrong side of that line. You're buying property at a pretty distressed price, uh, redeveloping it. And of course, now the only valuation you can get for that new product is from the hot gentrified neighborhood next door. You're expanding that neighborhood by moving the line. Now the line's on the other side of your property. If you go too far, it doesn't work. If you only do one or two, the market doesn't notice. But if you put a tiny bit of scale behind it, maybe get some friends together if you don't have the resources yourself, now all of a sudden the marketplace says, oh, I get it. The line has moved. And as you know, money is mostly made in the buy. It's when you buy right. So if you can buy land at pennies on the dollar, and I, you know, I'm talking 
five, 10 cents on the dollar, redevelop, and now the finished product is maybe not getting 100 cents on the dollar in terms of the hot neighborhood, maybe only getting 95 or 97 cents on the dollar. That's where the money is. So that's been, that's been our primary strategy in the Philly market. I, I really love the, the concept of that strategy. And when, you know, we, with Rain, we talk, often talk about investors that are looking at what we would call areas of transition, which is a little bit what you're talking about, but you're actually driving the transition. So I remember my early days of real estate investing, and particularly in Edmonton, because that's where I was kind of located. I would drive the streets of some of the questionable areas of Edmonton and look at some of the houses. And then I'd be looking for, is there new development? Is there new houses going in? Are people starting to show a little bit of pride of ownership and upping the game a little bit? Because those areas were more affordable. And so people would move into them, although they maybe didn't like the neighborhood. You know, it was a classic case of if I'm going to live in this neighborhood, I'm going to make my property great, which then, of course, there's a ripple effect. And in what I'm hearing in you, and you're, which is to me is buying the line, an area of transition is buying on the line. But what you're doing is you're saying I'm intentionally moving the line. I'm not waiting for somebody else to move the line. I'm actually going to be part of what drives the line. And that's kind of a, that I find that a really interesting strategy, but it takes some horsepower. It takes some money. It takes some uh, experience and nerve to actually invest in those areas, some rezoning, as you talked about. You know, we did a project, we started a project a couple of years ago that was really uh, maybe a couple of blocks too far. And fast forward to today, we built our pro forma for that building, assuming rents for a one bedroom around $1,100 and for a two bedroom around 1400 And we felt at the time that we put that pro forma together, we felt that was a stretch. Fast forward to today, this building is uh, just completing like literally this week. We are getting rents for May 1st. We just signed a lease for a one bedroom at 1350, not 1100. And we are accepting applications at 1650 for a two bedroom, not 1400. So for those of you who have spent any time analyzing uh, multifamily rent multiples, uh, that is huge in terms of the value that that's going to bring to that yeah. building. It's huge. So what kind of cap rates are you at working at now versus where you started, um, we, for example? We modeled based on a 6.5% cap rate yep. uh, for a brand new product, which that too is fairly conservative. Yes. Uh, so we think we've got a fair bit of upside. And our strategy, you know, whenever we create this much value, our goal is to cash out of the project once it's leased up and stabilized. So we want to do an equity pull. We want to refinance the project return 100% of the invested capital to investors within a relatively short time window. At that point, they're holding the proverbial no money down deal. Uh, their risk is off the table. They're still in the deal for their percentage ownership. And now they've got this annuity that's generating cash flow with infinite return for them. And of course, infinite return for us. Let's go back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier, Victor, which was you know, you're looking at a supply and demand scenario. So you're looking at areas where you're seeing higher demand than supply, or at least the supply doesn't meet the requirements of the demand. Of course, right. when you get into the ripple effect, for example, you know, I'll use Vancouver as an example, as, as, as an example. So I live in the Fraser Valley and although Vancouver's going through some economic influencers that are affecting prices and sales today, that too shall pass probably in the next couple of years. So side note, Vancouver could be a Areas of Vancouver could be a really good buying opportunity. But my point is this, is that when Vancouver was really 
prices were really going up. Rents were really crazy. There wasn't, and there still isn't enough rental supply. What happened was people would move what I would call down Valley. So they came down the lower mainland and then it even stretched into the Fraser Valley. And that was because affordability transportation was much easier because of Portman bridge in Vancouver area. So that's what I'm hearing from you. You're saying, you know, lots of New York accents in Philadelphia. And a lot of that is just driven by demand in terms of affordability. Would that be the case? Yeah, it's affordability. It's, it's lifestyle. I mean, if you're living in Manhattan, you're really in a concrete jungle. If you're living in Philadelphia, it's also a city. It's a major city, sure. but there are more parks. There's more green space. You can go running along the river, uh, things that you cannot do as readily in New York City. So it's a different lifestyle as well. Well, well one, I guess, would be more family-based. You know, arguably, I guess that would depend on what you want to do. But tell me a little right. bit more about the economic fundamentals. So do you look at, so of course at Rain we teach economic fundamentals. We look at job growth, employment in that regard, GDP growth and stability, uh, transportation and ease of transportation or transportation initiatives. Is that all part of your formula as well, Victor? Are you looking at those things as well? We'd look at that, but we actually even go more granular. So, for example, uh, when we started in this particular area of Philly, we were redeveloping product. Our mindset at that particular point in time was servicing the student housing market for Temple University. Uh, it's a campus in the downtown core, about 13, maybe 15,000 students. And at the time, there was a shortage of student housing. This, uh, the university built a new residence building with 1,200 beds, and that changed the dynamics of the student housing market overnight. Most of that product in the marketplace, if you have the student housing mindset, is to build, uh, is to maximize bedrooms, you know, because you're typically renting by the bedroom, you're getting your five $600 a month per bedroom, so you want to maximize bedrooms. Your people were building three, four, five-bedroom res residences. But the demand in the, in the broader market was not for five-bedroom units. The demand in the marketplace was for ones and twos. So there was a surplus of three, fours, and fives and a shortage of ones and twos. And we discovered that because we had a graduate student actually rent a, a three-bedroom apartment from us for just herself because that's all she could find. She could not find a one-bedroom or two-bedroom, which is what she wanted. And then the light went off and we said, oh, we need to pay attention to this. And it was at that point, we really did a deeper survey and said, okay, you know what? There really is a shortage of ones and twos. And since that time, that's all we've built. We've only built ones and twos because that's what there's a shortage of. So it's not just looking at, um, at, at kind of the bigger picture. Another area, you know, Philadelphia is a, is a very old city, uh, much like New York, much like uh, parts of old Montreal. Uh, so, that, you know, it was built before cars. There's no parking. Most of the parking is street parking. I know people in Philadelphia who will not move their car because they'll risk losing their parking spot. They'd rather take an Uber. You know, if they go to a meeting, they'll take an Uber because they don't want to spend 20 minutes finding parking and then spend 20 minutes finding parking on the way back. That's how, how cute the parking problem is. So when we build new product in Philly today, whenever possible, we incorporate structured parking because uh, that's a differentiator. It's going to take several decades, if ever, for the demand for parking to be satisfied in that city. So, you know, we will build, you know, the city has increased the height restriction to enable us to go four stories. That doesn't mean we necessarily get the density needed to utilize that full height, but we can often uh, use that height to build a ground level structured parking. We'll elevate the building uh, up on the second, third and fourth floor 
And now we have a building that's differentiated with parking. And if there's ever a downturn in the market, if there's ever excess vacancy in the market, a building with parking will always be full. I don't care what happens in the macro market. We're differentiated enough that we'll always be full. So you're really looking at the demand and then even getting more focused on actually saying, well, okay, we know there's a demand. We're really getting clear on what we need to supply to accommodate that demand. What's are people really interested in? You know, when you look at that overall strategy and how well thought out it is, I consider a couple of things around, I guess where I want to go with the question in this, Victor, is you're a developer, but you're also the developer that's holding on to the property. Are you also the person that's managing it? So when you think about you have a consideration, which to me would mean you're in the trenches, you're actually talking to tenants, you're looking, you really got, and uh, you have an idea of really the, the actual soul of what's going on in those areas and what the demand really is for. So you're talking to tenants, you're talking to uh, people in the area, and then you're accommodating that. So on the other side of it, are you also getting into that detail because you manage those properties yourself and so you're really on the heartbeat of it? Or wh- what is your role in that from that perspective? The key for any of these businesses is to have a, a well-rounded team. Uh, so I'm not on a regular basis talking with tenants. I do occasionally, but it's pretty rare. We have a local boots on the ground team. They're my business partners. Uh, they manage the construction on a day-to-day basis. I, I am hands-on involved in the construction. I review uh, the the budgets, the AIA contracts. I'm deeply involved in the design reviews with the architects and the engineers. So I do definitely roll up my sleeves at that level. But when the project is on autopilot, uh, you know, our partners, uh, they're, they're brokers, they have um, uh, a real estate brokerage. And in order to have a property management firm in Pennsylvania, you have to be a licensed broker. So we have that property management function in-house. I'm not the property manager, but I dialogue with them on a daily, weekly basis. So I really have a good sense for the heartbeat of the marketplace. And and we do that in every market that we're active in. You know, I asked the question because, yes, it does take a team. I mean, you don't scale the way you've scaled and take on the projects the way you have without having a great team. And I guess in... It, it, I'm drawing a little, a couple of a comparison. So I don't know if you know Dave Steele or Janet LePage uh, or not, but I mean, Janet LePage and Dave in Western Wealth Capital have built, you know, they've done over a billion dollars worth of real estate deals in, in the, gosh, in the past less than 10 years where they have become the biggest landlord in Phoenix. And the only reason I bring it is because I bring that to the table is that I'm, I'm seeing a slightly I see a similar model that's happening for me around the podcast. It's always about listeners understanding and learning from people who have scaled, who have done it. And in both cases, the model is how do we buy a a property undervalued and or develop it and bring it up and bring the cap rates up, bring the return on investment up and scale it. So in other words, who do you have on your team? What are the systems you have in place? What are the processes you have in place? And so for you as the developer side of it, you've really gotten good at how you approach probably, and I'm, I'm only making assumptions here, Victor, but you're obviously gotten, gotten really good at dealing with, let's say, Philadelphia in terms of zoning. So is that are those relationships that you're also responsible for building the way a property manager is responsible for building relationships and scaling and processes for their tenants? Is that kind of your area of expertise as well? 
that's that's part of it. I do rely an awful lot on the local team to to initiate those relationships. But at this point, you know, I feel like I can call, you know, I know zoning attorneys, I can call people at the city, I can do all of that. I would never do that on my own because it wouldn't make any sense. But yes, we've definitely developed those relationships. The the key is is when you come across an opportunity. Let's say you come across uh, three townhouses side by side. Most investors would look at those three townhouses, figure out what they can rent them for, maybe spruce them up a bit and try and throw them back on the marketplace. I look at it and say, okay, what is the zoning? Okay, it's RM1. That's residential multifamily. If I redevelop those based on the square footage of the lots, what density can I get? What's my construction cost? Uh, and so on. And I will figure out within the envelope of that property, what can I redevelop? And do the numbers make sense? So I'm, I'm starting with a blank sheet of paper. I'm not looking to find a deal. I'm looking to create a deal. There's a big difference oh, between those Oh, big difference. Two. Great, great. That's, I love that, that line. That's great. So, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, that's and and that, and that's the that's the difference. You know, a lot of people look at what's there as the envelope for what uh, what can be done with it. I look at what does the zoning permit, what does the uh, market demand, uh, and I look at it from a blank sheet of paper. Because if I'm if I'm looking at it the same way as everybody else, I'm competing with them for deals. And I don't want to compete. I mean, especially in today's marketplace where there's so much money chasing opportunities, especially in multifamily. Uh, you know, some of the bigger projects that come on the market, we see multiple offers. You know, uh, we put a bid on a 396-unit complex in Tyler, Texas, about an hour east of Dallas, and there were 20 offers. Uh, we didn't win, thankfully. I would never want to be the winning bid with 19 guys behind me. That's insane. So, you know, those types of things are just auctions at this point. And I don't want to be chasing those types of things and paying too much. I would rather stand by myself, still competing in the marketplace, but I'm competing uh, without competing directly. I can create the product from scratch, build what the market wants. Um, I'm not competing with, uh, you know, 20 other people for that particular property. I, you know, I'm competing with maybe one or two and buying it for what it is distressed. And they have no idea what I've got in my head for what that product, for that property, what it could be in the end. So tell me a little bit, Victor, about your model from an investor. So how do you attract your capital and position so people have the opportunity to invest? Is there a, a I'm assuming you have a very clear model for investors to look at deals and invest in deals. Yeah, we do. Um, for the most part, we're working with accredited investors. Um, we, in the United States, we use a syndication called a 506C. This is um, one of the SEC regulations. Uh, what's nice about that particular regulation is if you do it correctly and you file under 506C, you're exempted from the individual state regulations. So it, it encompasses the state filings. And um, uh, it you know, really gives you the opportunity to attract a, a large investor base. You know, in order to attract money, what I found is you really need a handful of things. Number one, you've got to develop relationships with the sources of capital. You've got to establish a track record. And that, that's you know, one of the fundamentals uh, for establishing trust, but trust is more than just, you know, what have you done? It's also making sure that that 
personal psychological contract is satisfied. Uh, you know, can I trust you to put together a good team? Can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can you? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you with my money? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? All of these different layers have to be there. Uh, next, you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And that's where I think most people start. They think, I've got a, you know, I've got a deal, I've got a deal, and they make it all about the deal, and it's almost never about the deal. Uh, so that's, you know, we only consider that to be one of the five elements that are essential. And then the last one that's critical is there's got to be that perfect alignment between the goals for the project and the goals for the money. If there isn't that perfect fit, don't take the money because it's not going to work. If there's any element of it that feels forced, don't do it. And I say that for us as the deal sponsor trying to put together the deal. And I say that for the investor who's looking to invest. If there's any part that feels forced, don't do it. So that's, that's kind of the approach. And it doesn't matter whether we're building a 10-unit building or a 240-unit complex. The approach is pretty much the same. The math is pretty much the same. We're always looking to do a cash-out refinance as an, as an interim exit so that we return capital. We're not buying flip guys. We're buying hold. Uh, and, and so that's always the philosophy. So just going down a, a different track, and I want to tap into you know a comment you made earlier about portable skills. So you had your background in software and managed big projects. You had all of those skills that you had. What appealed to you about real estate was why did you go into the real estate world? You know, first off, I want to say that I see so many individuals that have amazing skills, but they can't wrap their mind around how are those portable or how do I take those and, and put them in the world of real estate? So for you, what was the what was the observation you made that you said, I'm going to take this and, and start playing in the world of real estate and I can see that I have some skills that fit? I kind of took the approach that business is all the same in one sense. You know, all of the things that you need to run a technology company, a restaurant, a hotel, you know, any business, a consulting firm, all of those things are pretty much the same. Uh, at the end of the day, when you really boil it down to the fundamentals. And so I, I kind of looked at it from that perspective. The second thing that I saw that we wasn't necessarily that I was drawn to real estate in so much as recognize the need to make a change from what I was doing in the world of tech. In the world of tech, it's like saying, you know, I want to win the lottery when I grow up. I saw so many companies, good companies, die because of patent litigation or die because they were swallowed by, you know, a bigger fish. And, you know, really good companies that were successful had completed an IPO and even they could not survive more than two or three generations without being swallowed by a Samsung or an Intel or someone with those kind of depth of pockets or appetite for litigation. So it was it was really that that said, okay, well what else can I do that you know, is not going to uh, devolve into a monopoly or duopoly type of marketplace. And real estate kept coming up over and over again where there was, you know, a tremendous abundance in the marketplace. There isn't, you know, one or two dominant players in real estate. There's, there's millions of, of players doing very well. And guess what? People will lend you money uh, to invest where they won't quite so readily in the world of technology. So it just seemed to have a lot of the right ingredients. You know, if you look at where most of the wealth in the world has been created, it's been in it's been in oil and gas, it's been in real estate, it's been in, you know, a handful of businesses, but overwhelmingly real estate makes a, makes up a major component uh, 
of much of the wealth that's been created in the world. You're accomplished in business. You're accomplished in real estate. What lights you up about real estate? And when you look at your business and what you're doing, aside from, I guess, the deals and the profitability, you know, if we take money out of the equation, and I know it lives there, so I'm not saying take it out, but I'm only in beyond money, Victor, what lights you up about real estate and what you're doing? I love building businesses. It doesn't, in some sense, it almost doesn't matter what the business is. There's always challenges. Um, you know, every single real estate project I've been involved in has had challenges. Sometimes it challenges from within. Sometimes it's been challenges in the entitlement process, surprises, uh, neighbors that are not cooperative, all kinds of different obstacles get thrown up. Uh, some just in due diligence. You know, we were digging a foundation for a property and discovered through the middle of the backyard there was a live sewer line that was not documented. You know, we went to the city and said, what do we do with this? They said, don't tell us about it. We know nothing about it. And we said, what? I mean, they said, yeah, uh, we don't want to know. We said, you mean we can cap it? And they said, sure. <laughs> of course, we didn't. You know, we spent the extra 3500 bucks, routed it to the city and modified the design of our foundation to accommodate this extra sewer line that was not part of the plan. But you never know what you're going to run into. Um, and all of these types of problems, uh, they occur with alarming regularity, you know, sometimes every week. And you just deal with them and you've got to love the journey. If you're just focused on it for the end game and you don't love the journey, you probably won't survive. You probably will quit before you get to your, your destination because it's hard. And that's true of any business. You know, let's talk about business a little bit around that. So when you look at you being the leader, aside from the mechanics of business or doing real estate, are you really conscious of how you're being or who you're being as a leader, number one? And do you focus on how do I build a great team? And, and do you lead the way for how you build your teams, Victor? That's a great question. In fact, I, that was a discussion I was having with myself this morning about five in the morning, uh, that those two very questions. Uh, okay, Victor. Who are you going to be today? And it's not just what am I going to do, but who am I going to be? Because if I start with, with what I'm going to do, or if I start with what I want to have, it's backwards. I have to start with who am I going to be so that I can do what I need to do so that I can have what I want to have. It's that be, do, have. Robert Kiyosaki talks about it frequently in a lot of his lectures, and, and I believe that very, very firmly. Uh, so yes, absolutely. I do look at the makeup of the team. Where do we have gaps? If we're having trouble in an area, oftentimes it's because there's some weakness in the team. We've got maybe the wrong people in the wrong chairs, or there's a gap or a skills gap, and we have to address that. So that is a critical, critical part. I've learned a lot over the years, and, and we have three or four different businesses and different teams, and along with my wife, Stephanie, of course. And we're really have learned over the, especially over the past 10 years, the importance of creating culture and creating environment. So we have the culture that we're trying to create. So the whole team is buying into the culture. It's almost becomes part of our brand as well as the environment that we put people in or create for people to support the culture. And because you've got us teams, you're based in Canada how are you communicating with your team? How are you creating culture? How are you creating environment? Are you, you know, we're sitting here today on a Zoom call. It's almost like being in the same room together. How do you communicate and 
what do you have for infrastructure to connect with your team and, and talk about these things? Are those things that you have meetings about that say, okay, who are we? What is our environment? What is our culture? What is our brand? And how are you communicating that are you using technology like we're using today? We use, we use them very extensively. And, you know, even yesterday I was on a three and a half hour internal conference call. Normally they're not that long, but oftentimes when, you know, we'll, we'll certainly talk about culture at the beginning of a project as we're putting the team together. Uh, we don't necessarily talk about that on a regular basis, but if there is a stumbling block, we will often return to that. You know, we sometimes encounter situations where, uh, where an individual team member starts inverting the culture and thinking first about themselves instead of about the team, we need to bring it back to, you know what, we're all in this together and that needs to come first. Yes, we understand your individual needs and we respect that. And we first need to focus on making this successful. At that point, there's plenty to go around for everybody. But if we flip this upside down and make it about you and me, uh, then it doesn't work. So culture is an important part of it. Uh, we don't always deal with that, like I said, on a week-by-week -week basis. But it's, uh, it's something that we sometimes have to return to if there's a stumbling block. Yeah, I know that with a couple of our teams, we, don't you know, we certainly don't hit on it on a regular basis. But we do actually, in our world, we have at, you know, no less than twice a year, we're sitting down with everybody, talking about culture, talking about environment. And then really getting grounded in what we want that to be and what we want to represent. Because it's like a plumb line. You know, you have to stay true to something. You have to, and, and it's easy to veer off. To your point, you know, members of the team change, uh, views of the world change, life happens. And you can find yourself kind of a trajectory starting to shift with a big personality or a new leader. And if you have a clear plumb line to get people centered back to, I think it's important. And some, sometimes that, takes in our case we we make a a really uh intentional effort every uh, at least twice a year to do that so victor when you're talking about investors are you the primary contact for those investors and what's your kind of communication style or the model that you use in 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 handling your investors that's a great question and investors come in all kinds of different sizes and stripes um, in terms of what they're looking for. So the conversation does vary somewhat. You know, if we're dealing with a very high net worth family, they're not as concerned with rate of return. They're more concerned with preservation of capital, with the security. Uh, they're more concerned with making sure that the team has everything they need to be successful. They're usually more sophisticated, more savvy. And, you know, they know that there's going to be problems. So the conversation centers more around, um, you know, how, how do we deal with things when they arise? Uh, more of the, you know, the less sophisticated investors don't ask as many good questions. I prefer to be dealing with sophisticated investors because they ask better questions. You know, it's sometimes easier to raise money from unsophisticated investors, but that doesn't mean that you should take that money. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the, the posture and one of the questions I get very frequently in particular from rookie investors is this whole notion of, well, they're not sure about raising capital because they're uncomfortable asking for money. And my response to that is great. I'm uncomfortable for asking for money too. And so I never ask for money. What I do is I put together projects 
that we think are pretty compelling. And I give people the opportunity to participate and collaborate with me on those projects. And that's a very different posture uh, because we're really providing a very important and valuable service to them too. Uh, it really hit home for me. There's a, a particular investor uh, who's been with me for many years on several projects. And, you know, she doesn't have huge means, but she's hugely reliant on the rate of return that we've provided her over the last five, six, seven years for her entire family. Uh, so she's relying on us to execute. You know, we're providing a service to them. And and I'm always reminded of that. There's a not just a fiduciary responsibility, but people are counting on us in multiple different ways. Are you giving your investors quarterly reports or how do you communicate with your investors on a regular basis or how does that work for you? It's It depends on where we are on the project. If we're in the midst of construction, that's usually monthly. If we're on autopilot in a project, that's quarterly. Uh, so it depends where we are in the pro- in the phase of the project. And so these are buy and hold deals. So if I invest some capital with you, we go through the project, you give us an update, you say, it's good to go. We're now putting tenants in the property and you've, you're now into the mode of just general day-to-day operations. At some point, you're, everything looks good. You reapproach the bank, you refinance, you pull capital off the table, you pay out your investors. And is there reporting in on a regular basis in that, or that does that then switch to kind of an annual thing or a biannual thing? Yeah, it usually goes to quarterly at that point. Quarterly. At that point, we're on autopilot. We'll we'll report quarterly. Yeah, yeah. I, I dig into the model because, as I say, there's listeners that have different visions or uh, versions of how a an investment should go and what a joint venture partnership should be and or an investor partnership should be. So I like to get perspectives and ideas from those who are more accomplished and have scaled and have done some things to share with listeners on how they operate. A quick question I want to touch base with you. Do you have a a vision for your business or do you have goals for your business? So where do you, do you see a a long-term vision for where you're going, Victor? Or how do you kind of give a context for what you're doing in business and what you want to evolve to uh, achieve, I guess? That's a great question. There's really two answers to that. You know, when I set goals, uh, there's two types of goals you can set. You can set attainment goals and you can set habit goals. And both might lead you to the same place, but they do it very differently. Uh, I'll give you maybe a trivial example, um, but maybe it illustrates the point. A little over a year ago, I set out to start a podcast and I decided, and you know, I wanted to you know, add some, add some value to the marketplace. Wanted to uh, gain a following, uh, but and I recognized that I could only do that by adding some value. If I had set a goal of let's say a hundred thousand downloads, I would have almost certainly failed. Instead, I set a goal to put out one piece of quality content every day. So now four hundred and fifty episodes in, you know, I'm producing one piece of quality content every day. Haven't missed a day. And we're also just about to uh, run a contest uh, in celebration of our quarter millionth download. If I had only focused on downloads, I would have never achieved what I've accomplished. So it's sometimes it's about setting uh, a goal that's out in the future that might be a particular milestone. But I actually think the more important goal to set is the habit goal. And whether that is how you're going to run the business on a day-to-day basis, how you're going to uh, conduct yourself on a day-to-day basis, what you're going to do incrementally, day in, day out, 
and how that ultimately translates into the big picture, um, you know, time will tell. Guest I had on my show, Kirsty Dunn, who's a brand ambassador, a uh, young lady who's very accomplished in the space of training and uh, working out. That's her kind of her, one of her gifts. Really great, great story. But a phrase that she uses is around even setting goals. That's great. But she talks about training the habit. And when you train the habit, you actually get the outcome in a very interesting way. And it was, it was just an interesting way to, to, uh, kind of wrap a thought process around how do we achieve the results that we want to achieve. And in her case, you know, train the habit is a, is a different way to look at it. And if every day you're training the habit, guess what you're doing? You're actually moving forward and accomplishing that goal, which is a little bit about what you did with your podcast as well. That's exactly right. You know, I'm often reminded of, uh, something called the 30-day challenge that started with two comedians who early in their career were really struggling to generate new material. And so to help each other and to hold each other accountable, they challenged each other to write material for 30 minutes a day for 30 days. And each of them did that. At the end of 30 days, they got together, they compared notes, and they both found they had written 30 minutes of material uh, every day or written material for 30 minutes every day for a month. One guy at the end of those 30 days quit. And the next guy continued for seven years. That second guy is Jerry Seinfeld. I don't know who the other one is. Wow. That's a great story, by the way. Thanks for sharing that. So, Victor, you talk about a lot of the stuff that you're doing in the U.S., but what have you got going on in Canada? Or do you, do you have projects going on in Canada that would, I guess, equate to what you're doing in the U.S.? One of the, I, I keep beating the drum of supply and demand, and I really view the marketplace through that lens repeatedly. And so I look for markets where there's that acute demand and a shortage of supply, but in particular, I want to see constraints on the supply side. And one of my favorite markets in Canada right now is actually in the Rocky Mountains, not, not far from you, uh, and that's the town of Banff, Alberta. Uh, Banff, as most of you know, if you've ever been there, it's inside the boundary of the national park. It gets about 6 million visitors a year. And because it's inside the boundary of the national park, there's a moratorium on development. Hotel rooms in Banff are going routinely for 600 a night, especially in the summer months. And so we've started looking at opportunities just outside Banff, uh, where the business case is, well, if you were 15 minutes away, would you be willing to save 150 bucks a night? And most people would. So we've been acquiring property in the neighboring town of Canmore. Uh, we're negotiating on land. Uh, we've not successfully purchased any land, but at some point we will develop there. This too is a market where there's a lot of constraint on the supply side. Uh, and uh, because of that, we, we feel very much like this supply-demand imbalance, it's going to persist for a long, long time. And when you're buying, you know, even a two-bedroom condo that you can get, you know, over 600 a night in the summer months, you know, some people buy rental property hoping to get 600 a month. I'm talking 600 a night. Uh, it changes the game. Now, one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they say, okay, I'm just going to go buy this condo. I'm going to throw it up on Airbnb and life is good. These businesses are all active businesses. It's never about the asset. It's always about the team. It's always about having the skill set to effectively manage the business. When you have a high turnover, when you're in the hospitality business and you're competing with you know, the Fairmont and you're competing with all of these other products in the marketplace, 
you've got to be competitive. You you can't just go and buy your furniture at IKEA. You can't just go and uh, you know buy used furniture on Kijiji. You've got to really have top end product so that you get those high quality reviews. Uh, you know we find, for example, over this past winter. Uh, you know, the winter and, and the shoulder seasons are, are you know, slower activity uh, and the rates drop. We find that we got more than our fair share of occupancy because we had better product, because it was better managed. The reviews say, wow, it's like I moved into this place for the first time. Uh, you rarely, rarely get those types of reviews on Airbnb and VRBO. Uh, so it's, it's not just about buying the assets, but it's about recognizing what's needed in the marketplace how to service that need uh, and put the right team in place. So, you know, that's a bit about what we're doing in Canada. We find a lot of the markets, a lot of the submarkets in Canada, very expensive relative to the rents that you can get. This is one of those micro markets where there's that supply demand imbalance and we're, we're thrilled to be there. We're actively acquiring. We closed on another unit yesterday. We got another one closing in, in a few weeks. So we're, we're quite active in that market. I think that's interesting about what you bring up about Canmore, because of course there's Banff and then there's Calgary, but what you're very clear on is that in this case, you're doing Airbnb and you're catering to, let's say the tourists that are visiting that particular town. That's what I'm hearing. And correct. And so what we need to be clear about Canmore is that in the area of Canmore, you have a lot of people that, you know, they do that live work thing in Canmore. So that works. So they're often buying, but there is a, a demand for rental. Uh, I haven't seen the updates on what's going on in Canmore. The point of this conversation, I guess, or my point of this is that you have to be really clear on who your client is, who's your end user, who is actually going to be, because the service industry in Bath, it's hard for those that are living and working in Bath. So the service industry, those less paid or those lower income individuals cannot often afford to live in Banff itself. So they have accommodations that support that, but often they're commuting and they're commuting from Canmore, but then they get to Canmore and they're, they're even rents in Canmore can get a little bit high. That's all to say that you have to be very clear on who your client is and what your focus is in an area like Canmore. Would you agree with that, Victor? That's that's exactly right. And one of the things that I like about that community, and a, a lot of people have gotten into short-term rentals wherever you may live across Canada without having a clear picture of what that means from a regulatory point of view. You know, many cities, many people got into short-term rentals before the cities even knew how to spell Airbnb. Um, and then they, they figured out, well, we're going to outlaw it or we're going to tax it or we're going to impose some restrictions. Meanwhile, you've signed on a 25-year mortgage obligation and, uh, and your business case has changed overnight. What I like about Canmore is they've enshrined it in the zoning. So if you have a property that's zoned residential, you cannot do a short-term rental. If you have a property that's zoned tourist or vacation, then you can. So it's enshrined in the zoning and that, that constrains the supply side. You know, if you think about Uber, uh, which is part of the sharing economy, there's no, nothing that prevents one more car from joining the Uber fleet. There's no constraint. And what happens when there's no constraint on the supply side is that prices fall until everybody's suffering a tolerable level of pain, but nobody's making any money. I want to look at the demand side, but I also want to see that constraint on the supply side so that the market conditions that we see as favorable today will persist for a good long time. So important. And 
you know, you've chosen Canmore and you've gotten to know Canmore, you know the area, you know what's going around and going on in surrounding area. You're very clear on the client and user, if you will. If you look at, I'm going to use Vancouver as an example, because when people say Vancouver, they say Vancouver and they don't really think about, they say, well, Vancouver's too high priced. You can't make money. You can't do this. You can't do that. Yet, first off, Vancouver is a very, very large market, really. You know, you start to getting in, into Port Coquitlam, you start getting into Surrey, then you can come down the Fraser Valley. I mean, there's a lot of areas that people just really encompass as well, that's Vancouver. Well, that's not Vancouver. The point is, is that there's lots of people making money in the Vancouver and lower mainland areas and certainly in the Fraser Valley. But to be specific is understanding what is going on in Surrey. Why is it one of the top towns? Why is it a great place to invest? And get really specific even into what neighborhood, which is what I'm hearing that you've done, whether it be in the U.S., in this case, focusing on Canada and Canmore, that's really the key to all of it is understanding that very specifically becoming an expert in that area. Absolutely. You know, you just down the coast from you, you've got Seattle, which is an amazing market from a growth and from a jobs perspective. You've got Amazon, you've got Starbucks, uh, Microsoft, Boeing, uh, Expedia is moving their headquarters into a building in the downtown core. Apple just opened their artificial intelligence lab in Seattle. Uh, you've got a great, great job story. Uh, you know, the city absorbed in the downtown core about 8,000 new residents last year. That's a great number. So, so far, so good. The problem is they built 25,000 units of new product. It's going to take years for that to be absorbed. Oh, and by the way, there's another 32,000 units at the permit stage. How do you feel now? So it's not just looking at the demand side. It's, you got to look at both. That's great. Great insights. Great wisdom, Victor. I love that conversation. So thanks for that. You're welcome. That's cool, man. Where did you start in the world of real estate investing? I mean, you didn't, or, or did you jump in big or what was your work up into that? I started small. Um, I took a business approach again. I started in the Ottawa market. And what I saw was there was a need, if you go back 2006, there was a need for servicing the parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officer, government contractor market. Government spends money in six-month increments, so your typical 12-month unfurnished lease is of no use to them. The government housing allowance is usually in the sixteen dollars to $1,800 a month range. So, you know, spending $3,500 a month at the Minto Suites Hotel, that doesn't work. Um, they, there really wasn't a product offer out there specifically targeting that market. And uh, so this was long before Airbnb existed. And so I really built a small business targeting that market specifically, buying condos within walking distance of Parliament and offering that full-service turnkey executive suite rental targeting that market specifically. And it was a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business. And it was solving a particular problem. Your learning curve got bigger. You just kept yeah. you know, adding on to it, expanding, and uh, expanding on the concept and expanding on the model. Uh, and that's that perfect alignment between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And if you don't have that perfect fit, don't take the money. So what does that alignment really mean? You know, the investor is going to have a certain amount of money. If you're looking to raise, I don't know, let's say $200,000 and your investor is looking to put $5 million to work, it's not going to work. Uh, you know, it's not worth their time to even do the paperwork. You've got to size the size of the investment to the, you know, to the capital that's available. How long is the money going to be tied up for? Is someone looking to put the money to work for 
six months or six years. You got to have alignment there. What's the tax consequence? What's the control structure? What's the security? What's the risk? All of these things come into play. Now, when you're dealing with unsophisticated money, they tend to not to have very stringent criteria. You know, they say, I want to make money and don't lose money. But they're not very clear necessarily on how that money has to be packaged. As you deal with more sophisticated investors, they're much more clear on exactly what the model needs to look like. And it's about a dozen criteria. And if you only get 11 out of 12, it almost works, but it doesn't quite. So you just need to be really clear on what the goals for the money are. And if it doesn't fit, don't waste time. Don't try and force it. Simply make sure that you find someone for whom it is a good fit. When you do your own planning and as you've grown into this, are you actually really intentional about what you want that money and the results that you are, you know, you talk about alignment and the results given that alignment, do you, are you actually sitting down and really thinking about and working through the whole, whole process? Cause it's not just, I either make money or lose money. There's a lot of things in between that, especially with investors, of course. So are you, is that a very intentional list that you've now check off as you, as you are having conversations, at least checking off in your own mind as you're having con, uh, conversations with investors or looking at deals? Do you have checklists like that? Yeah, so we have a f- large enough ecosystem of investors that meet the model that we've put forward. And we didn't arrive at the model accidentally. Uh, it was derived over time. Um, you know, often in marketing terms, you talk about having your customer avatar. And what that really means is having somebody that's a very clear image in your mind in terms of what that end customer looks like. And that exists in virtually any business. So in you know in my case, my customer avatar, his name is Tom, and he's a real person. And you know he's someone who sold a business. Uh, he took the proceeds from that business, wanted to put that money to work. And he had certain criteria that he was looking for. And so I'm just looking for more Toms out there in the world. They're looking for safety of their capital. They're looking for a path to repayment of the capital through a refinance. They're looking for a certain cash on cash return, typically in the between eight and ten percent. And they're looking for an IRR over, you know, blended IRR, internal rate of return in the mid to high teens over the span of five to ten years. So they're willing to tie up their capital. Uh, you know, for for two to five years, depending on the scope of the project, they want a rate of return during construction. So that's important. We always put in a preferred return. We put an interest reserve in our projects, make sure that there's a path to getting at least a little bit of cash back in the investor's hands during the construction phase. And then when the project's cash flowing, of course, they get to enjoy that as well as the, the, the forced value creation that we created by building a new product. You know, what I love about that is how well thought out it is and the clarity that you have around it. And I, I think that uh, working through that is such an important part of when you're building the model. You've got a proven system, you're, you're actually expanded on it, and, and you've tested it, you've, you've worked through it so that you know that that's what you can deliver on consistently and actually refine and make even better. Probably every project that might even improve a little bit, given what you've uh, got for experience now. We're always learning and, you know, learning is a euphemism for having made mistakes. Yeah. Uh, so, and <laughs> we're still it. making mistakes, <laughs> uh, which is all part of the process. Yeah. You know, uh, last year we did several capital raises uh, last year that literally were completed in a few hours. Uh, and I'm not saying that to boast. It's just what happened. 
so we then took that, we kind of patted ourselves on the back and said, all right, we can get a little bit more ambitious here. And so we tried to do a very large raise, thinking that the result would be the same and discovered that it wasn't. It was actually going to take a lot more time and realized as well that when you try and you know put together a large raise out of a small number of folks, then what happens is you need a lot of conversations. Uh, and so we were, in fact, looking for the wrong source of capital for that particular project. We, in that instance, had to go to a different uh, different source of capital, really more the family office, the high net worth families that are looking to write a bigger check. Um, so we kind of had to stop and regroup. Uh, so it's always a learning process, sizing the the, the criteria. I always like to, when I'm, when I have a guest on the show, I start to, you know, I like to start to look at how this journey kind of began for you. And, and so you, you were, you know, what was it about the work that you were doing? And I think it was the tech industry of some version of the tech industry. Why the, why the say, why were you saying to yourself, I got to get out of this industry or I want to get out of this industry and do something different? What, what kind of motivated you or inspired you to do that? At that particular point in time, um, I had left a VP of engineering role um, in a California company, uh, had 13 different design centers uh, around the world. So it was a lot of travel. It was a big team. I then took another role, uh, VP of engineering in a Montreal company, and we were building chips that are used in cell phones and uh, data cards and things like that. We ended up getting a contract with a carrier in Japan, building a new cellular network there. And in the span of two years, I made about 20 trips to Japan. And at the peak, I was going back and forth every couple of weeks. So it was physically that's, burning me out. You know, I live in Ottawa. And so if I wasn't driving two hours to the office in Montreal, I was flying to Tokyo. Uh, so it was really at that point, it wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't the right thing for the family. And it was time to do something different. So that, that was really the driver at that point. Now, I could have gone and got another tech job. And I looked at it, I considered it, interviewed with another company that was building, you know, some of these guidance vision systems for vehicles, Uh, but they were, you know, the parent company was in Korea. So I kind of saw the same thing. I would have been trading Japan for Korea. And I said, no, 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 this is the wrong thing. So at that point I said, you know, maybe it's time to take a left turn. And, um, you know, one of the nice things about real estate is that, you know, it's much more certain uh, than the tech industry. And uh, people will lend you money to invest. Um, and if you look at a lot of where the wealth in the world has been created, predictably, it's been more so, more so in real estate than in tech. I mean, there's been tremendous wealth created in tech, but you had to win the lottery to, 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 to achieve it in technology. So are you an engineer by trade, Victor? Yes. Yeah, electrical engineer. And my specialty was in chip design, microprocessor design. That, that was really the core of my career. Now... We were talking about international travel back and forth to Japan. And, and I think that, you know, on the surface, because I've done uh, international travel and lots of travel over all of my life, it always seems so sexy to people looking in and it just beats the crap out of you. I mean, really, you know, not only physically, but mentally, you're upside down all the time with uh, some kind of time zone change. And, and those are extensive time zone changes when you're going to Japan from Canada. And uh, that can really turn you around. Absolutely. And it's not like sightseeing. You know, I I took my family with me to Japan a couple of times and that was awesome. But trying to make a four minute connection in Shinjuku Station to get to Narita Airport and all of this kind of stuff, there's there's no joy in that whatsoever. It's uh, it's just a grind. So go back even a little bit more, you know, because 
at this point in your life, you've created the success that you've created. You've, you know, achieved and built the real estate world that you've created for yourself. And, and you're, you know, you're now an entrepreneur from a, a job. What, you know, was there some entrepreneurial spirit in you at all times or uh, it, did that just emerge as you got a little bit older or how did that kind of entrepreneurial spirit business, you know, owner, you know, direction come to you? Was it a, you know, what, what, what drove that? Do you think was it from roots early on? Yeah, it was always there. And, uh, you know, I was involved in a couple of different startup companies, uh, raised a lot of money, uh, in those startups, but you know, there's something about the safety of doing that within the confines of a, an A round or something like that, where you're getting, you know, several million or several tens of millions of dollars that, you know, is going to give you a few years of runway. It's a very different deal than when you're there on your own and you're the guy. It's quite a bit different. Um, you know, I, at the time, I would think nothing of hiring an engineer, paying them 110000 a year. I wasn't spending my money. I was spending the investor's money. And, you know, when you, when you have your own money invested and it's, it's your reputation on the line, it's, it's a different thing. Um, There's a lot of responsibility that comes with it, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Were they business owners? What was what was your background? What was the background of your parents? They were not. It's funny. Uh, so my dad was a dentist. My parents lived in New York City. They lived in Manhattan for 25 years. Uh, so they certainly had some of that business culture. Um, the um, My mother was the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. Uh, she built some amazing landmark buildings in Manhattan. And it's still fun to go back there. In fact, I was there a few weeks ago uh, and uh, I got turned around. I was in Midtown Manhattan. I turned around and I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There's my mom's building. Uh, and it was right there in front of me and I completely forgot where I was. But uh, yeah, it's, that's, that was kind of cool. So, you know, I always had the architectural interest. That probably would have been my second career if I hadn't gone into electrical engineering. And so that it's part of the fun that I'm having today. I mean, I love uh, getting into the design aspects. In fact, just before you and I got uh, on the line together, I was in a value engineering call with our architecture and our construction team, you know, pulling cost reduction out of a particular new building that we're about to get going on. And, uh, you know, anytime you go through and you're doing material substitutions and at the end of an hour, you've just saved $200,000, you feel great. Uh, so it's, it's a fun part of the process. Now it's, you know, I, I know it, it hasn't been all roses. I mean, that never is in business. Have you got a, any, any stories that stand out for you that, you know, what I like to say is, you know, what was probably, you know, what's, what was your biggest mistake that maybe turned out to be a blessing in disguise or, you know, the, the biggest mistake that turned out to be a huge lesson that really was a catalyst for something great going forward. Any, anything that comes to mind, Victor? Oh my goodness. I don't know how much time we have. What I would <laughs> what I would say is that every single project, I don't care how simple it looks, every single project you undertake is going to have some kind of problem with it. Maybe it's a small problem. Maybe it's a calamity. Maybe it's a series of problems. Every single one. Uh, even things that look straightforward. Um, you know, I'll give you one that is very recent, actually, uh, it, simply to illustrate the point. This was a project that we had undertaken. Uh, we're building in, in a smaller town in Louisiana called Lake Charles. This community, uh, and this is no exaggeration at all, this town of 200,000 people 
has 118 billion, with a B, of natural gas, petrochemical, and seaport expansions underway over the next decade, of which about 48 billion is currently underway. So, you know, try and calibrate those numbers to that population. It's staggering. Um, they need everything. So one of the things that they need is they need places to house the workforce. Anytime you build a liquid natural gas plant, you need a place to put 6,000 construction workers. Uh, you can build a man camp or something like that. What many of them choose to do is take their housing allowance, go buy an RV, put it on a payment plan, and at the end of their contract, they have an RV that they own. So we built an RV park. Seems pretty straightforward. Seems you know? smart, sure. So this particular RV park, uh, you know, 17 acres, we leased the land on a 15-year ground lease. Uh, little did we know that none of the neighbors were uh, wanted this project to exist. Even though it had been approved by the city, it was zoned, all of our neighbors opposed the project. And they did everything in their power to stop us. They denied us access to utilities. So they would not grant us the right-of-way or the easement to gain access to water and sewer. So we had to drill two 500-foot wells to build our own municipal-grade water supply. Uh, we had to build our own captive sewage treatment plant. Uh, one of our neighbors uh, denied us access to electricity. They argued that the power pole 10 feet from our property line, that the easement they granted to the utility didn't extend to the property line, so we couldn't have access to power. You know, at a certain point, we said, okay, no big deal. A 10 megawatt generator should be about right. You might be downwind some days, but no big deal. And uh, eventually they granted us access to power. Even the road, the city had built a roadbed in front of the property and put it in the wrong place. Who in their right mind would ever imagine that the city would put the road in the wrong place, but it actually encroached on the neighbor's property and the neighbor argued we couldn't use it. It had wow, been this is this is uh, this is sounding a lot like the headlines we read around a pipeline <laughs> trying to go across Canada. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, holy, when you know when when people go no, uh, they'll, they're going to put as many roadblocks in the way as possible. Absolutely, and 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 yet we were able to eventually over a period of time to knock every single one of those dominoes over. And, you know, the, the quality that existed within the team, not just myself, but within the entire team is a quality that's just grit and resilience that you're not going to be stopped or defeated no matter what. Um, and yeah, it was, it stressful. Of course. Um, were there days when I was saying, Oh man, you know, we've got millions of dollars of investor capital tied up here. Um, you know, we've got to solve this. And so there's, just <laughs> a continual stream of these types of things. Uh, and until you actually live through it and recognize that this is all part of the game, you've got to have the fortitude to be able to, to uh, deal with these things when they surface, because they will. I think, you know, you hit three key words there, you know, grit, resilience, fortitude. I mean, at the end of the day in this scenario, if the top of the mountain is getting this built and there is no option, there is literally you can't see yourself going back down the mountain. So there's only one way and that's forward. You may have to take a step back, but it's only getting to the top and whatever it takes to get to the top and, and lots of lessons just in that story. So thanks for sharing that. Was there a, was there a fork in the road for you? Was there a tipping point that, you know, you can say that if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be where I am today. Boy, there's so many. I mean, let me share a couple of thoughts that I think will be valuable for your listeners. Number one, 
we talked a little bit about team earlier on, but I want to make this point because it's so important. When things go wrong, occasionally it's an act of God, you know, something got struck by lightning, but it's rarely that. When things really go wrong, when they really go off the rails, it's because you had the wrong people in the team or the wrong people in the wrong chairs. Most of the time, when there's a major screw up, it can be traced back to that one thing. So you as a business leader, the one thing you have to focus on, I'm sure, and you know, I, I don't know all the inner workings of rain, but I can almost guarantee without even knowing that, that if you've had issues in rain, it traces down to that one thing as well. It comes down to having the right people in the right chairs. Uh, sometimes it's skill, sometimes it's experience, uh, sometimes it's character. It always comes down to that. So that's what we focus on. If there's something that's systemically not working, what change do we need to make to get the right person in the right chair? That's really the the, the main thing. You know, many years ago, uh, you know, the responsibility of you know owning a business and and wearing the hat, whether you know whether you're the CEO or whatever role that might be. But a long time ago, a good a mentor friend of mine, somebody I admired in business, once shared with me, you know, one fundamental thing. He says, "Whatever's going on with your business," and he was at the time owner and CEO of a, a multi-million dollar manufacturing business. He said, you know, I actually phoned him to have a discussion about some of the things that I was seeing was going wrong. And, and, and it wasn't in my world, it wasn't about him, but when he came back to me and had the conversation, you know, his, his, he said to me, he said, Patrick, at the end of the day, whenever anything's going wrong with my business, I have to look in the mirror and I don't care if it's the stock boy or, or, you know, somebody that's running the sales front line. Ultimately, it's a reflection of what I'm stepping over, how I'm being, or how I'm not being, what I'm missing, where I'm not taking a stand, where I'm not being clear. It's a huge responsibility to carry. And as I'm hearing you, when you look at that particular project, uh, you know, the RV park, or, you know, what really puts a big emphasis on it is that there's millions of dollars at stake. And even bigger than that is it's, it's with individuals who are counting on you to deliver on what you say you're going to deliver on. That's a huge responsibility. Exactly. Exactly right. And, you know, uh, one of the things that um, I, I say to people, if they are thinking about taking investors' money and they're not scared by that, then uh, they shouldn't get into it. You know, it, it, it is a huge responsibility and it's one you got to take seriously and uh, if you're, if you're not, if you don't feel that in the pit of your stomach, uh, don't get into this business. I've been in business about 35 years and, um, to whatever degree I've had success and, you know, I, 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 and I'm always pushing the envelope. Don't know why that's kind of a pattern I have to examine, but that's a different conversation for another day. But when I look at, you know, what I've achieved, what I've been able to achieve, how I operate, none of it could happen without the support of my wife, Stephanie. She's also a business owner and has been for many years as well. In, in your world, how important has your relationship been with your wife, your family? Uh, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that, um, you know, we all have different centers in our lives. Um, you know, we have different roles that we play uh, in the community. Uh, with ourselves, with our family, in business, spiritually, these are all different roles. And if you think about people that you know, you might say, well, this person over here is family-centric. This other person over here is community-centric. They're on, you know, 10 different boards or what have you. Um, and it's, it's a matter of choosing. 
for me, my centers are basically two. It's my family and, and, and the business. Yes, I'm active in the community, but you can't be pushing on all fronts simultaneously. It's just not humanly possible. You can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. So you have to choose. And, and so that, that's been the choice for me is to focus on those two. So, you know, I do, you know, try and make sure that I have time uh, with my wife every morning. We will take time. And before we even start our day, we will have, uh, we'll actually do a guided meditation together. And that's how we start our day every day. And if we miss that for, you know, one day for whatever reason, the, the day feels off kilter. Um, so, you know, it, we really do focus on that. Um, I don't know if it's a complete answer, but that's no. I that's think kind it's, of my it's a it's a great answer, and and but to that point, what's your morning routine? And 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 I'm going to actually qualify. Let's let's talk about uh, morning routine. But I also want to say, do you have a routine in your life? You know, a, uh, besides morning. So you talk about a guided meditation with your wife, and and that that's awesome. But I also want to hear. I want to hear about that. But I also want to hear is do you do? Is there something you do in the evening that you prepare yourself for for the next day? Yeah, that's a good question. And it actually, quite candidly, that's an area that, that's that been a little bit of a struggle because often I find that there are action items spilling over from the end of the business day. And often I'm finding myself in the evening trying to clear those things off my plate so that I have a f- clean, fresh start to the next day. And that's a double-edged sword. You know, you get stuff cleared off so that you have a clean start the next day, but then maybe it's not the best pattern. So it I don't have a perfect answer for that one. Uh, one of the things that's been both a blessing and a challenge is producing a daily show. You know, that is a huge commitment. Uh, I have not missed a single day uh, in over a year now. And so that's th- that's a huge commitment. There have been the occasional time when I've been, you know, two in the morning in a hotel room somewhere recording tomorrow's show. That's rare when that happens, thankfully. But you know, even that I've recognized that there are certain uh, energy flows for me during the day. I produce the best quality content if I record in the morning. By the end of the day, my voice is tired. The quality of the voice is not as good. Uh, and I can tell the difference in the quality of the recording if I record in the morning versus the evening. So, um, you know, I really do try and create a regimen there so that, um, so that it's done well and done consistently. So morning routine, uh, do, you, do you go for walks? Do you do some physical stuff? Uh, do you journal? Is there any of those kinds of things yes. that you've gotten yes. into? So we do them. We, we meditate. I do journal. Um, I'm currently off of uh, an exercise regimen and uh, struggling to get back on it. That's partly a, you know, like anything, it's a choice. So, you know, I'm not going to make excuses for that. Uh, we are at a very busy time in, in the business at this point. Uh, where we have several big projects. And so I've made the choice for now, uh, for the next little bit to get those projects launched fully. But uh, yeah, my preference would be to be exercising every day. Um, And, uh, you know, I've gone through patterns of time when I have been able to do that successfully. And right now at this moment, I'm not. It doesn't feel good, but I'm confident that I'll get back there again in the near future. You know, there's the the ebb and flow, and you know I've I I've always been a morning routine person, and and I rise early to accomplish that and to accommodate that, and uh, but there is always an ebb and flow. There are times where you know I'm not up at five in the morning. I'm up at six o'clock in the morning or six thirty in the morning. That's rare, and they're they're short times. I might. 
be off my workout pattern for weeks at a time, but I always go back to it. It's really right, right. honoring whatever's going on for us, I think is important, but to always go back to it. And, and that's the important part of it, right? It's to, it's, it, it's, so it doesn't show up as an all or none. It just shows up as a break. And sometimes it takes that break to recalibrate and to come back at it with even more uh, passion or, you know, more energy. So I think it's uh, I think that's a normal ebb and flow. The cool thing about all of it is, is in the world of successful ind- individuals, it's always in their awareness and, and they go back to it, but it's a part of what you're doing. And so mentally, you know, that journaling and spiritually around your meditation and the connection that you have with yourself in that meditation, I think those are incredibly important. So, uh, well done with that. As we kind of wind down, because I do know you're busy and I've really, uh, I really do appreciate the time that you've, uh, you've brought to this particular uh, conversation, Victor. Um, I just have some fun, you know, trying to have some fun and, and wind up with a kind of a rapid fire set of questions uh, to sure. wind things down. What are you reading these days? What's your favorite book and, or what are you reading? Or what is a book that you like to gift on a regular basis aside from your own, but you can plug your own book. That's for sure. <laughs> oh boy. There's several. Um, it depends on how much time I have. So for example, I have a, a couple of Tim Ferriss's books that I will open almost randomly to a particular chapter, whether it's Tools of Titans or... Um, Tribe you know, of where Mentors. Tribe of Mentors yeah, is Tribe another of, good one, yeah. Yeah, both both those books. Um, I've, I've been reading those off and on for about a year now. In fact, uh, we're heading on vacation uh, next week, so I'm going to bring at least one of those with me, even though they're, it's about... Uh, it's a big, heavy book. Ray Dalio Principles is another excellent book. I, one that I was actually working on in December is called The 12-Week Year, uh, which is a great book. Uh, and the premise behind that book is that if you're planning your year in 12-month increments, that you'll, in fact, fool yourself into thinking that you've got a lot of time to get stuff done. But if instead you consider a year to be 12 weeks in duration, not 12 months, they'll get more done. So mm. I've actually planned um, I've planned a 12-week year for this quarter. Uh, that's different than planning uh, a quarter. It sounds like a subtle difference, but, it, but it's significant. And, so, and sometimes these subtle differences are, are, are huge, right? It's, it's about trajectory. I always talk about subtle differences. You know, you, you strike a golf ball one millimeter out at the tee and it's in the other fairway at 300 yards. So it is often about trajectory and how we create trajectory can be the most subtle thing. And so uh, I totally get that one. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I'm reading right now. What's your favorite inspirational quote? Do you have one that comes to mind, Victor? Hmm. I don't know that... Uh... This is one that I that I often repeat. Um, it might even be my own. I'm not sure, but it's quite simply that a good deal badly managed, of course, is no deal. Mm. And so, oftentimes, when people talk about a deal, they forget that the only differentiator is the management. So, a good deal badly managed is no deal. What's your favorite swear word? <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, I would have to say it's. Uh, I would have to say. It's uh, it's in Italian, uh, so <laughs> because uh, when uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a, a crusty old carpenter that did work around our house, and 
uh, he used to swear uh, up and down in Italian. He used to just have this long litany of oh, porca miseria, and it just went on and on and on. So it would have to be something like that. Something so, in Italian. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have a job that you you really hate to do, but you continue to do it because you're good at it? Any of those that show, show up for you? You know, I'm, I, I would say I'm a strong generalist, so that has the consequence that I often do things that I shouldn't, mm. uh, which might be a variation on what you're talking about. You know, so for example, I often get pulled into doing things from a digital marketing perspective because it's almost more efficient for me to do it than to hire someone to do it when in fact the right solution would be to hire someone. Yeah. I can do it. I'm good at it. Uh, do I like doing it? No. Uh, do I, am I really adding a lot of value if I'm... Uh, you know, spending a half an hour tweaking a Google AdWords campaign. Not really. Uh, but uh, yeah, sometimes I get pulled into doing stuff like that. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you hit the gates? He left the world a better place. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Room. Do you have a favorite tune, favorite song? Uh, yes, Tom Sawyer by Rush. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. Probably the original Star Wars. Mm, cool. That's a great movie. My favorite movie right now, because it's just fresh in my memory and I've just seen it and I want to go see it again, is Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, wow, Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Mercury story, Queen story. That's just a movie you got to go see. If you have any, uh, even if you don't like music, it will, it will convert you. Anyways, it was a, an amazing, amazing movie. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story here. So I, I love music. And for years before I got into electrical engineering, I was actually, um, uh, you know, pro sound engineer and toured with a lot of different bands and uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, had I, I, for that reason, have a very hard time listening to studio recorded music because it lacks the energy and dynamic range of a live concert. And um, so even to this day, I prefer that live sound even if it's recorded from a live event and uh i still to this day uh you know really think back fondly on those days touring so that's cool what are you grateful for today victor oh wow uh i'm grateful for living where we do here in canada we're very blessed as a well-traveled uh individual i'm sure that that comes with a lot of meaning for you yeah. I'm grateful for you being on the show as I am with all my guests, but I can't say enough for uh, how much you brought to the table today, the time that you put in. And I'm incredibly grateful for uh, having this opportunity to have this conversation, Victor. Thank you for well, being on you. the podcast. And uh, I think thank you for pushing record on your end of it too, because I got a glitched card. So, uh, so thank you for that as well. Well, my pleasure. And uh, hopefully uh, the recording is solid on your end as well. Thank you for having me on the show. It's, I've enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I know we last time we met face to face was probably about six, eight months ago. Uh, and look forward to connecting in person again. Yeah, 100%. Thanks, Victor. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. 
I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.